I wonder how many of you, either in your job or your school or in public, have hesitated from demonstrating your Christianity because of the governmental and societal pressure for your faith to be an absolutely private function. From the top down, the reasoning for keeping Christianity as distant from public influence as possible is the old political doctrine of church and state. How high has that wall become? And is the wall impenetrable? What does it mean for the church and the state to be separated? And should it be? We will answer these questions today. But first, we had our Republican primary debate last week, and I'm going to tell you who won and even who lost the debate. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We the Free. Well, it happened. The first Republican primary debate took place over a week ago in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, at which too many candidates got together to trade blows, express their grievances with President Biden and President Trump, and attempt to sway more primary voters their way. I said there were too many candidates, and you could tell this was the case just by Brett Baer's face throughout the night. Um, there were eight people which were organized from the center of the stage outward from highest in the polls to lowest in the polls. This was, however, excluding the leading candidate, former President Trump. A lot of people were not happy with President Trump opting out of the debate. I'm sure Fox News was unhappy because their viewership was almost 50% lower than the last initial Republican primary. According to Nielsen, about 12.8 million people watched last week, meaning that more than 24 million, 24 million watched it in 2015. Trump, of course, opted to air a pre-recorded interview with Tucker Carlson, which diehard Trumpers <laughs> gloated over the view count of over 200 million on X, or formerly known as Twitter. The only problem with these metrics are that a social media view can count from just three seconds of viewing. And while Nielsen ratings counts for views of at least five minutes, like someone has to watch for at least five minutes for a view to count. Now, tactically, Trump is trying to regain the presidency. Participating in the debate does not help him to achieve that goal. If he had participated, he would have been the evening target practice for likely every candidate, but maybe one or two. So politically, it was the right move for Trump. Yes, he should be able to debate and take shots, but I'm saying he doesn't have to in order to win. His public reasoning for skipping the debate is also valid. He's ahead by tens of points in front of the second and third candidates. In some polls, he's ahead by 40 or 50 points. The debate would have been a waste of time, and participating in one could have potentially harmed his poll numbers. I think it would have. Now, Trump was <laughs> arrested and mugshotted the very next day, which only increased his chances and helped him raise over $7 million more million. 
His scheduled trials currently stand in early March, late March, May 20th, and we're waiting on the, the trial date for the Georgia case. Now, I've already pointed out that the Department of Justice and these uh, state DAs have clearly waited over two years to prosecute Trump on all of these crimes like a successive drumbeat. And, and for what reason? Well, you be the judge. His first trial is set for March 4th. March 4th. That is the day before Super Tuesday, when Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Maine, um, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia all hold their primary elections. Then he has the hush money trial on March 25th, on May 20th, the documents case, and then on June 4th, all of the final states will hold their primaries. And then in mid-July, the GOP will name its nominee to run against Biden. Now, how many of these candidates are banking on this prosecution to take Trump out? How many believe that it won't affect Trump's candidacy and they're gunning to be Trump's running mate? Now, think about all of, all of this as we break down this debate. Now, as Christians, we're looking for the candidate who will punish evil, reward good, and establish law and order. We're not looking for who excites us the most or who touts the best record or who delivers the best blows. We're looking for a candidate that can win and execute our nation's highest office with utmost regard to Judeo-Christian values. I would commentate accordingly, but this is a debate. Debating, especially with this many people, is not simple, it's not easy, so I'm also going to rank each of the candidates' performances at the end of this segment. I'll tell you who won the night and even who lost the night, but I also um, want to know what you think, so let me know in the comments. In, the, in that two-hour time slot, they, they covered 11 topics, 11 topics, with a closing lightning round and closing remarks. The debate, of course, began with the introductions to each speaker in front of a packed crowd at, get this, Pfizer Arena. Really, Fox? And surprisingly, <laughs> the crowd booed when the moderators introduced uh, Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson. My initial thoughts were, who is Doug Burgum, and what on earth is Nikki Haley wearing? Of course, uh, Fox begins by misappropriating the song Rich Men North of Richmond by Oliver Anthony in the starting topic, because the song is literally talking about them. It's talking about all politicians in Washington. But the night's first question about the economy went to DeSantis who started off strong and focused. Our country is in decline. This decline is not inevitable, it's a choice. We need to send Joe Biden back to his basement and reverse American decline. And it starts with understanding we must reverse Bidenomics so that middle-class families have a chance to succeed again. We cannot succeed as a country if you are working hard and you can't afford groceries, a car, 
or a new home, while Hunter Biden can make hundreds of thousands of dollars on lousy paintings. That is wrong. We... We also cannot succeed when the Congress spends trillions and trillions of dollars. Those rich men north of Richmond have put us in this situation. And finally, we need to lower your gas prices. We're going to open up all energy production. We will be energy dominant again in this country. I showed it could be done in the state of Florida. I pledge to you as your president, we will get the job done and I will not let you down. His answer seemed to steal Trump's thunder on energy independence, but then the spotlight turned to Governor Christie as he promoted his experience as a Republican leader in a blue state. Now, I was elected as a conservative Republican in a blue state with 61% of the vote, with a Democratic legislature against me the entire time. And we still, through hard, strong decision-making, brought them around to our point of view. We cut taxes in New Jersey. We cut debt in New Jersey. We cannot sit by any longer and allow the kind of spending that's going on in Washington, because every dollar they spend is a dollar that these people are not allowed to spend on their children and their grandchildren. It's robbing our country, and it's wrong. Well, Governor, let me just follow up very quickly. New Jersey, when you were governor, had the second lowest credit rating in the nation after Illinois, and it was downgraded 11 times. Yep. Yeah, and, and that's what happens when you inherit a blue state. Brett Baer, one of the moderators, questions Christie about New Jersey's debt, to which Christie deflects to previous governors, of course, because it's always the last guy's fault. It's always the last guy's problems. Now, when Vivek Ramaswamy was given the floor, here's what he had to say. So first, let me just address a question that is on everybody's mind at home tonight. Who the heck is this skinny guy with a funny last name, and what the heck is he doing in the middle of this debate stage? I'll tell you, I'm not a politician, Brett. You're right about that. I'm an entrepreneur. My parents came to this country with no money 40 years ago. I have gone on to found multi-billion dollar companies. I did it while marrying my wife, Apoorva, raising our two sons, following our faith in God. That is the American dream. And I am genuinely worried that that American dream will not exist for our two sons and their generation unless we do something about it. And I do think Brett is going to take an outsider because for a long time we have professional politicians in the Republican Party who have been running from something. Now is our moment to start running to something, to our vision of what it means to be an American today. If you have a broken car, you don't turn over the keys to the people who broke it again. You hand it over to a new generation to actually fix the problem. That's why I'm in this race and we're just getting warmed up. Now, I'll admit, I'm a little skeptical of this guy because he seems too good to be true. And I know for certain he's flipped on a few issues we'll talk about later. But there's one thing he said right there that Chris Christie picked up on amazingly because this happened later in the debate. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. And the last person in one of these debates, Brett, who stood in the middle of the stage and said, what's a skinny guy with an odd last name doing up here was Barack Obama. And I'm afraid we're dealing with the same type of amateur standing on stage tonight. Just same, like you did to Obama. The same type of amateur. And, and you'll help elect me just like the, you did to Obama, too. Give me that same type of amateur. Hold on. Hold on. Now, here's Obama in 2004 when he was a senator 
speaking at the DNC that year. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. So I don't know about you, but that sits a little funky with me. However, just for debate's sake. This was a great moment because Christie really nailed him on this one, but Vivek hilariously hit back saying, well then come give me a big hug and help get me elected as he did with Obama. So there was some good back and forth uh, there for the debate. But next on the economy was former governor and ambassador Nikki Haley, who was the first to attack the other candidates on a stage. Watch this. And while they're all saying this, you have Ron DeSantis, you've got Tim Scott, you've got Mike Pence. They all voted to raise the debt. And Donald Trump added $8 trillion to our debt. And our kids are never going to forgive us for this. And so at the end of the day, you look at the 2024 budget, Republicans asked for $7.4 billion in earmarks. Democrats asked for $2.8 billion. So you tell me who are the big spenders. I think it's time for an accountant in the White House. Vice President Pence. So Nikki comes out swinging, and, and then we get to the old Venus flytrap, Mike Pence. The former vice president was very proud of his record, but the problem was, all night long, Pence was sanctimonious in all of his answers. He also seemed... Uh, just kind of disingenuous in his Christian answers, and, and worst, he ignored the allotted time bell numerous times, and far more than any other candidate. And he also interrupted the other candidates and the moderators several times. Watch this. Martha, you asked earlier who's the most best prepared for this job. And I must tell you, with all due respect to all of my friends on the stage, and even to one that's probably looking on, I think unquestionably I am the best prepared, the most tested, the most qualified and proven conservative in this race. Well, let me explain well, it to you. Let me explain it to you, if I can. I'll go slower this time. I, you know, I, I sometimes struggle with the reading comprehension. Look, I was, a, I was a House conservative leader before it was cool. Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. We don't need to bring in people without experience. You're shaking your head. What, well, look, I'm, I'm not new to this cause. After I gave my life to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I opened up the book and I read, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You know, it's not about looking back at, at January 2021. It's about January 20th, 2017. I put my left hand on Ronald Reagan's Bible. I raised my right hand. And I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And it ended with a prayer, so help me God. It was a promise that I made to the American people, but I also made it, it made it to my Heavenly Father. In talking about the economy, Pence became the second chronologically to attack the Vic. And then DeSantis delivered this glorious line in the spirit of Donald Trump. Why are we in this mess? Part of it and a major reason is because how this federal government handed COVID-19 by locking down this economy. It was a mistake. It should have never happened. And in Florida, we led the country out of lockdown. We kept our state free and open. And I can tell you this, as your president, 
I will never let the deep state bureaucrats lock you down. You don't take somebody like Fauci and coddle him. You bring Fauci in, you sit him down, and you say, Anthony, you are fired. Rolling into the second topic on climate change, Fox simply asked the candidates to raise their hands to see if, as president, they would commit to doing more to combat climate change. So the candidates start looking around when DeSantis takes charge and says this. So we want to start on this with a show of hands. Do you believe in human behavior is causing climate change. Raise your hand if you do. Well, look, we're not school children. Let's have the debate. I mean, I'm happy to take it to start. <laughs> Alexander, so do you want to raise your hand or not? Now, Vivek refers to this subject as the climate hoax, when as recently as March, he had said the opposite. In talking to CBS News, Vivek said climate change is also real, by the way. We're talking about the climatism piece of this. When I talk about climatism and COVIDism, I'm not denying the underlying reality of COVID. I'm not denying the underlying reality that global surface temperatures are going up and in part due to human activity. Before he gave his answer, Vivek said he was the only one up there who wasn't, quote, bought and paid for, which is a little silly. I, I know what he means, but Saying that someone depends on financial donations instead of their own finances is bought and paid for is ridiculous. Now this is how that went when he said this to the others. Let us be honest as Republicans. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change oh, whoa, agenda whoa, 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 whoa. is a That's hoax. Just ridiculous. The climate this change is agenda is a hoax. And we have to declare independence for it. And the reality is... Nikki Haley believes in climate change, and her answer was the most sexist and feminist remark of the whole night. This is exactly why Margaret Thatcher said, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. Now, Tim Scott throughout the night gave great answers, especially in regard to Christianity. But at one point, he said something to the other opponents about not being childish, which I understand but the majority of conservatives are looking for someone who is ready to fight to save our country from the proverbial cliff we're headed over. So, other than this sleepy demeanor, Scott continually referred to his poor upbringing, his, his absent father, his single mother. And again, I understand the appeal and, and I appreciate seeing a man of color talk about being opportunistic in the land of opportunity. But you can't keep going back to the same talking point over and over and over. So the debate moved on to the subject of abortion next. Uh, Nikki Haley wants to push for a federal ban on abortion at 15 weeks, which honestly is not good enough for the majority of Christians. Uh, the question was, would you enact a federal six-week ban? To which DeSantis sort of deflected and said this. I'm going to stand on the side of life. Look, I understand Wisconsin is going to do it different than Texas. I understand Iowa and New Hampshire are going to do different. But I will support the cause of life as governor and as president. We, we Vice President Pence, a, you're shaking your head. In other words, keep it a state issue. This is another moment where Pence was sanctimonious and attacked Haley's position. Doug Burgum, who is uh, the governor of South Dakota, by the way, he cited the 10th Amendment in saying the federal government could not ban abortions. 
Um, I completely disagree with that because the Tenth Amendment says the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. But the Declaration of Independence describes the God-given natural rights of liberty and the pursuit of happiness, but the fundamental right, which undergirds every other right there is, is the right to life. And you're telling me that's a state issue? This isn't a time to talk about federalism. This is the time to talk about protecting innocent and defenseless lives. And shockingly, Asa Hutchinson agrees with me. The Supreme Court gave it back to the elected representatives, whether it's the states or whether it's the United States Congress. That's so right. there is authority. And that's why President Biden is pushing for a Democrat proposal, which is, in essence, abortion on demand through the term. So they have their extreme position at a national level. We, it's most likely going to be addressed in the states, but it's certainly fine for it to be addressed at the national level as well. That was the best answer on the subject, but Tim Scott's answer was equally as good. We must fight for life. Our Declaration of Independence says our Creator gave us inalienable rights that include life. That is a list. That is an issue we must solve. We can't leave it to Illinois. We then the night turned to the subject of crime and homelessness. Mike Pence gave a good response on increasing support for police and a strong commitment to law enforcement. Chris Christie was the first to give a really detailed answer with an actual plan. Vivek also gave a great answer and was the first to mention faith as a response to dealing with crime. Just over the same period that we have closed mental health institutions, we have seen a spike in violent crime. Do we have the spine to bring them back? I think we should. As president, I will. But it's not just drugging up people in those psychiatric institutions with Zoloft and Seroquel. It's a deeper issue. I think faith-based approaches can play a role here, too. DeSantis was the only one who could truly parade his credentials on dealing with crime. This was his answer. These hollowed out cities, this is a symptom of America's decline. And one of the biggest reasons is because you have George Soros funding these radical left-wing district attorneys. They get into office and they right. say they're not going to prosecute crimes. Yeah. They disagree with the inmates start running the asylum. There's one guy in this entire country that's ever done anything about that. Me. When we had two of these district attorneys in Florida elected with Soros funding who said they wouldn't do their job, I removed them from their posts. They are gone. And as president, as president, we are going to go after all of these people because they are hurting the quality of life and they are victimizing innocent people in every corner of this country. And it will stop when I get into office. Lowest crime in Florida, despite Brett Baer's mention of rising crime in Miami in 50 years. And he's the only one on the stage who can say he's removed some of these district attorneys who refused to prosecute criminals. It was on this subject that Asa Hutchinson was the first person on the stage to truly attack former President Trump. It starts at the top with respect for our justice system that a former president who's under indictment has undermined by attacking judges, by attacking prosecutors, by attacking the system and saying he's aggrieved. 
And so we have to have respect for our justice system and the rule of law, and it starts at the top with the President of the United States. Now this segue perfectly into the next topic of the night, Donald Trump. As a father who naturally enjoys a good dad joke, I appreciated this transition from Brett Baker. But we are going to take a brief moment and talk about the elephant not in the room. Get it? Like, it's awkward and it's what's on everyone's minds, but this is also the Republicans who are commonly associated with elephants. Anyways, the subject of Trump was launched with a raise your hand question for all the candidates. Watch their responses carefully. Actually, I'll I'll just give you some help. Vivek's hand is going to shoot up immediately. He's not looking around. He doesn't care what the others say, but watch everyone else. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Everyone else is looking around to see what everyone else is going to say, including DeSantis. And personally, I cannot stand that. Vivek is the only one who showed any personal independence there. Everyone else was saying, well, if, if you do it, I'll do it, I guess. Now, this is a good moment to talk about the fact that most people who run for president aren't actually running for president. They're pretending to run for the office, but they're actually gunning for a VP position or a cabinet position uh, to be some sort of secretary over some department. Just think about how Biden placed uh, Sanders and Buttigieg in his cabinet, and he also made Kamala Harris his VP. Now, with that said, I personally think that Vivek is running to be Trump's shared ticket. Maybe Burgum wants a cabinet position, but everyone else is attacking Trump, who is Notorious for holding grudges. So I I take that to mean they're actually running for president. Like, take Chris Christie's answer on Trump and watch how how the crowd has to be silenced in their booze. You make me laugh because you 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 sit here and an answer, you sit here and an answer right You sit here and answer. Go ahead, Governor Christie. Hold on, Governor Christie. Hold on. Well, so listen, the more time we spend doing this, the less time they can talk about issues you want to talk about. Next, the night moved on to, yes, I know, January 6th and Trump and Mike Pence's actions that day. I think DeSantis said, what we're all thinking. The thing. This the election <laughs> is not about January 6th of 2021. It's about January 20th of 2025, when the next president is going to take office. I know what the Democrats would like to do. They want to talk about all these other issues, but we've got to focus on your future. We've got to focus on reversing the decline of our country. Right, right. Pence was once again sanctimonious, defending his choice on January 6th, and Chris Christie backed him up. But Asa Hutchinson took this opportunity to say that January 6th has 
legally disqualified Trump from running again, according to the 14th Amendment. And over a year ago, I said that Donald Trump was morally disqualified from being president again as a result of what happened on January 6th. More people are understanding the importance of that, including conservative legal scholars who says he may be disqualified under the 14th Amendment from being president again as a result of the insurrection. This is something that could disqualify him under our rules and under the Constitution. He's referring to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office civil or military under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as any executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in, here it is, insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof but do you notice what two positions aren't listed there president and vice president so i'm sorry to burst your bubble asa nikki haley said the people can decide but then she backhanded trump and then candidates started talking about the weaponizing of the Departments of Justice. Vivek wants to shut down the FBI and several other departments. I think Tim Scott watches our show because he said this. We should be asking ourselves a bigger question about the weaponization of the Department of Justice. When I'm president, the first thing I'll do is fire Merrick Garland. Second thing I'll do, fire Christopher Ray. Because we need Lady Justice to wear a blindfold. Without that, no one has confidence in our justice system. The debate then moved on to discuss Ukraine. Vivek Ramaswamy was the only one who opposed more funding to this war. Mr. Ramaswamy, you would not support an increase of funding to Ukraine? I would not. And I think that this is disastrous that we are protecting against an invasion across somebody else's border when we should use those same military resources to prevent across the invasion of our own southern border here in the United States. DeSantis seemed to hinge American support or more of it on more support from Europe. Uh, Chris Christie is all in on giving to the Ukrainians whatever they need, but Pence tries to butt in here and gets scolded like a child. We achieve peace through strength. Mr. Vice and America President. needs to stand for freedom. Okay, here we go. I think we need okay. to establish some ground rules When here, we folks. hear this bell, yes. that, that means your time's done. done. <laughs> so, Mr. Vice President, we appreciate your aggressiveness here. 30 seconds is 30 seconds. Mr. Ramaswamy, you were mentioned. You get 30 seconds. Now, Vivek has voiced differing and conflicting policies on giving financial aid to Israel. In June, he said he would like to cut aid to the entire Middle East, including Israel. On August 11th, he said he would wean Israel off of U.S. aid by 2028. August 18th, he said aid will continue. And then the next day, he said Israel will not require aid by 2028. So a lot of flip-flopping. But during the debate, he was pressed by Nikki Haley on this when he said the following. 
And you know what friends do? Friends help each other stand on their own two feet. So I will lead Abraham Accords 2.0. I will partner with Israel to make sure Iran never is nuclear armed. But you know what I love about Israel? And I've been there probably in the last 10 years more than most people on this stage. You know what I love about them? I love their border policies. I love their tough on crime policies. I love that they have a national identity and an iron dome to protect their homeland. And so, yes, I want to learn from the friends that we're supporting. And what puzzles no, me cut the, is, uh, no, I want to learn from those and apply you, those to protect our homeland, that Nikki. Israel that needs is the answer. America. America needs on? Israel. Okay, they Governor DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, you were mentioned... For the record, I think Haley has that backwards because the United States does not need Israel. It truly is the other way around. They are, they are our ancestral spiritual siblings. They are surrounded by people who want to wipe them off the planet. And the country is literally like the size of New Jersey. Now, in an interesting turn, DeSantis said this when he was asked about Ukraine. Your first obligation is to defend our country and its people. And that means... You're sending all this money, but you're not doing what we need to do to secure our own border. We have tens of thousands oh, wow. of people who are being killed because what well, we're not handling both. And both so I am going to declare time. it a national emergency. I'm, I'm not going to send troops to Ukraine, but I am going to send them to our southern border. For just a moment, the topic moved towards China, which Bergham had a great answer on. But the conversation came back to the southern border and illegal immigration. Pence's answer was pretty good because he was able to speak from experience and tout his record. We secured the southern border of the United States of America and reduced illegal immigration and asylum abuse by 90%. I negotiated the Remain in Mexico policy on behalf of the President of the United States, and AC, you're so right. It's because we used economic pressure to bring the Mexicans to the table, and they allowed us to have people wait in Mexico while they applied for asylum and ended asylum abuse overnight. Economic pressure was one of the key factors in Trump's administration and his foreign policy. So hopefully we'll get to see that again. But I was surprised by Chris Christie's answer. We have to have law and order in this country. We have to enforce the law. And what that means is to make sure that people who come here illegally are not rewarded for being here illegally. We have so many wonderful people from around the world who are waiting in line following the law to try to come here and pursue the American dream. Would you send those people back? Of course. Then the debate moved to education, and it was mainly concerning reading levels and test scores, but DeSantis had the best answer here. We need education in this country, not indoctrination in this country. And in Florida, Florida, we stood up for what was right. First, we had schools open during COVID, and a lot of the problems that we've seen are because these lockdown states lock their kids out of school for a year, year and a half. That was wrong. We stood up. I took a lot of fire for that. I was uh, I was pilloried by the media, but I stood for our kids. And as president, I'll stand for you and your kids as well. But we have to make sure that what our schools are doing is focusing on solid academics. In Florida, we eliminated critical race theory from our K-12 schools. We eliminated gender ideology from our K through 12 schools. And we have elevated the importance of American civics and teaching our kids about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. 
As president, I'm going to lead an effort to increase civic understanding and knowledge of our Constitution. We cannot be graduating students that don't have any foundation in what it means to be an American. Mr. Next, they debate women's sports for just a moment, and this is actually the closest that Fox got to discussing one of the most pressing issues in the country, transgenderism. This is just another sign as to how liberal Fox has become that they didn't even ask a question about that issue other than should boys be allowed to compete in girls' sports. And when given the opportunity, DeSantis brought up transgenderism, but Nikki Haley just deflected back to reading levels as if it's a more important issue. In the lightning round, the moderators asked a question about age and mental acuity in office. Pence took this opportunity to attack Vivek and maybe even DeSantis with this answer. I'm running for president of the United States because we don't need a president who's too old and we don't need a president who's too young. We need a president who's been there. We need now, in the closing remarks, DeSantis was second best. He had a really good closing remark, but Vivek gave the best closing lines. I was born in 1985, and I grew up into a generation where we were taught to celebrate our diversity and our differences so much that we forgot all of the ways we are really just the same as Americans, bound by a common set of ideals that set this nation into motion in 1776. And this is our moment to revive those common ideals. God is real. There are two genders. Fossil fuels are a requirement for human prosperity. Reverse racism is racism. An open border is not a border. Parents determine the education of their children. The nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to man. Capitalism lifts us up from poverty. There are three branches of government, not four. And the U.S. Constitution, it is the strongest guarantor of freedom in human history. That is what won us the American Revolution. That is what will win us the revolution of 2024. Thanks for letting me introduce myself tonight. Thank you. Now, I've ranked all eight candidates from last to first, and the night's only loser was Mike Pence. He was the only person who likely lost traction. There, there's no way he gained anything from this debate. He was self-righteous. He was rude. He was attacking others more than anyone else. He interrupted constantly. He spoke out of turn. He talked over time. So the former vice president came in dead last. I think Tim Scott was next at 7th. His answers were good, and he was the most solid Christian on the stage. But in terms of the debate, he did not win the night. Next, in 6th place, is Asa Hutchinson. He gave some good answers. Uh, he also gave some terrible answers. He had the best answer on the issue of abortion, but he uh, improperly cited the Constitution in his justification in keeping Trump uh, from re-election or re-entering office. In fifth place, however, in a surprising performance was Doug Burgum. His answers were good. He spoke within his time. He didn't attack anyone, and he cited his record in South Dakota, which seems fair. So congratulations to Doug Burgum. Now here's your top four candidates. In fourth place, I've got Nikki Haley. She came right out of the gate just cutting throats and, and attacking her op opponents. Uh, she was literally the first to do that in the night, and 
She has a fairly good record as governor and ambassador to the United Nations. I did not like her sexist remark about hiring a woman to get stuff done, and you know, quoting Margaret Thatcher. I didn't like her saying climate change is real. Um, she used to have a good relationship with Trump, but I guarantee you that bridge was burnt and burnt tonight. In third place, and it honestly pains me to say this, was Chris Christie. Chris gave some good answers, and he debated well. He must have a steel trap of a mind to remember that Obama quote from 20 years ago, which he caught Vivek on. He pushed through the audience booing him and deflected well on issues that he's weak on. Now, I'm going to give you the top two. I think Vivek did second best, and DeSantis won the night. Vivek said a few stupid things, like that he's the only one up there who wasn't bought and paid for. Uh, Flip-flopping aside, he gave fantastic answers. He had quick responses. He debated well with others, including when he was being attacked. And he was attacked more than anyone else because he's performing well in the polls. And I think, I think Vivek probably gained the most from the night, but I think DeSantis won the debate. His answers were obviously uh, rehearsed and memorized, but if you can get past that, his answers were incredible. He steered the conversation on a couple occasions, like with climate change, he said, we're not children, let us have the debate. He was able to boast about his record more than anyone else on the stage, even Mike Pence, because his leadership in Florida has been unmatched by anybody else. He wasn't abrasive. He wasn't necessarily combative on stage. He just stood his ground. He looked America in the face and gave his answers. Now, I don't know if he gained any support or more importantly, took any support away from Trump by this debate, but he outperformed everyone else on stage. As for Trump's interview, I don't think that helped him any. It was basically the, the same info we've heard numerous times. Doing the interview and skipping the debate was purely tactical, and I think it served him well. The latest polls as of Tuesday have Trump at an average of 50%. That is a massive lead over DeSantis at 15% and Ramaswamy at 10%. So DeSantis may have won the debate, but Trump won the night and the week last week. The majority of you are coffee drinkers and maybe some of you even fancy yourselves coffee connoisseurs. Well, whether you're someone who likes to down a quick cup to get a quick caffeine dose or you enjoy the art of crafting an excellent cup of joe, you've got to give my friends at Blackout Coffee a shot. They've got bags of ground or whole bean coffee or even single serve pods. They've got many different blends, flavors, and roasts. My personal favorite is Morning Reaper. It's one of their medium roasts. So use my code BLAKE23 and you can get 20% off. That's B-L-A-K-E-2-3 for a discount and level up your morning cup with blackout coffee. Any person, but especially people of the Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, who oppose the moral degradation of their community or country is blocked or barricaded or befuddled by an often cited political doctrine 
separation of church and state. This political philosophy, which we will dismantle today, has been the liberal justification for the objection to religious activities on school grounds or the teachings of religious texts or a faculty-led prayer time uh, group and organization. It is this very doctrine which is used as a cudgel against Christians who stand against abortion or gay marriage, transgenderism, and more, especially when it's a congressional Christian or a Christian in local or federal government. You can't use your public position or your taxpayer-funded position or your elected position to support the religious views or philosophies or convictions of a particular religious group? Why not? Some would even take it so far as to say that your religion can't be expressed in public or your career. Again, why not? Thomas Jefferson is one of my favorite founding fathers. And while we don't have enough time to describe the leadership and success of this American giant, we can recite the better-known facts that he was the central author of the Declaration of Independence. He was the third president of the United States after serving as John Adams' vice president and George Washington's secretary of state and Benjamin Franklin's successor as ambassador to France. But he was also the second governor of Virginia, succeeding Patrick Henry. In his first month in office, a piece of legislation was in the Virginia Assembly on June 18th 1779, called A Bill for Establishing Religious Freedom. I'm going to put the link to this document in the comments section so that you can read this bill with me if you want as I explain Jefferson's text. Now, this was written in 18th century English, so I'm going to attempt to modernize it as much as possible. And so, it begins. Jefferson says well aware that, and just keep in mind that all of these sections that I'm going to quote basically follow these opening words. Well aware that, anyways, this first one opens, well aware that the opinions and belief of men depend not on their own will, but follow involuntarily the evidence proposed on their minds. So speaking on behalf of the Virginia State Assembly, in 1779, Thomas Jefferson began with this assessment that we don't draw conclusions from our own will, but that we're convinced by some sort of external persuasion. He continues, that Almighty God hath created the mind free. Now, this is a distinct God, the Judeo-Christian God, hence the capitalized word Almighty he claims he has created the human mind, one of liberty. It is free to think and determine, to form opinions, etc. He says, And manifested his supreme will, God did, that free it shall remain by making it altogether insusceptible of restraint. So it was God's will that the mind of man be free without restraint, which has been manifested by this almighty God. He says, that all attempts to influence it by 
temporal punishments or burdens or by civil incapacitations tend only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness and are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. So that holy author of our religion would be the same Judeo-Christian God, who he's just referred to as the Almighty. He said, God imposed his supreme will by making the mind of mankind free and without restraint. But that God's will is not accomplished, or there's a, there's a departure from his plan when there are attempts to influence the mind by punishments or burdens or civil incapacitations. Now, since the context here is mental liberty, or the word that he used there was opinion, Jefferson means that it goes against God's plan to attempt to influence opinion by punishments and burdens by, you could say, the authorities. It would displease God for the civil authority to say, well, since you don't agree with my stance, I'm, I'm going to revoke some of your privileges. Such habits only create more ugliness, he's saying. Jefferson continues, who being both Lord of body and mind, yet chose not to propagate it by coercions on either, as was in his almighty power to do, but to extend it by its influence on reason alone. Reason alone. Again, Jefferson is referring to God, and he says that even though God is the Lord over our bodies and minds, God doesn't force himself onto us, or into us for that matter. Even though he has all the power and authority to do so, God instead attempts to influence us by reason alone. And this is very, very important. Jefferson is using the highest authority as an example of the proper use of influence in regard to religious convictions or beliefs. It must not be exerted by force against the will of the person, but by the persuasion of reason. This is key to understanding this entire concept. With God as our example, religious convictions or theological beliefs, which inform our, our words and actions and thoughts, must not be exerted by force against the will of the person, but by the persuasion of reason. The bill continues, that the impious presumption of legislators and rulers, civil as well as ecclesiastical, meaning like church leaders, who being themselves but fallible and uninspired men, have assumed dominion over the faith of others, setting up their own opinions and modes of thinking as the only true and infallible, and as such endeavoring to impose them on others, hath established and maintained false religions over the greatest part of the world and through all time. So they recognized there have been many leaders and authorities historically, both in the secular sense and the religious sense, who have imposed their opinions and modes of thinking, or what they hold as true and infallible, on their followers or subordinates. In fact, they believe this to be the case for most of history. Jefferson holds this abuse of power to be the source of false religions, which sort of implies that there is a distinct true religion or religions, Judaism and, or Christianity. Now, this isn't to say that 
true religion can be exerted on people because that would contradict his conclusions about God and the whole bill. He says that to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. Jefferson draws this conclusion because of his understanding of God, that it would be immoral or, and tyrannical to force a person to financially support the propagation of opinions with which he does not agree. Secularly, we're compelled to pay taxes, right? Sacredly, we are compelled to tithe. Therefore, if the secular engine is propagating opinions which, with which the taxpayer disagrees, it is sinful and tyrannical. If the sacred engine is propagating opinions with which the congregant disagrees, Jefferson held that it is sinful and tyrannical. The tyrannical behavior looks like what was previously mentioned. Punishments, burdens, civil incapacitations, and here, a misuse of financial allocation. It's necessary here to define opinions as your position of that which is seemingly true. However, despite postmodern relativism, there is but one truth. One. There is but one singular reality. And this is the reason that scholarship defines opinion as belief stronger than impression and less strong than positive knowledge. And another definition is a belief or judgment that rests on grounds insufficient to produce complete certainty. In this very legislation, Jefferson posits the reality of Almighty God, God's will for personal liberty, and also the historical corralling of the masses. All of this as positive knowledge with complete certainty. So one could attempt to point to some innate contradiction in the bill questioning how Jefferson could propagate his own opinions against those who have propagated their own opinions, but Jefferson is declaring that which he knows to be true by appealing to what? Reason alone, as does the Almighty God. He's doing exactly what he's recommending. The bill continues to say that even the forcing him to support this or that teacher of his own religious persuasion is depriving him of the comfortable liberty of giving his contributions to the particular pastor whose morals he would make his pattern and whose powers he feels most persuasive to righteousness. This follows his description of the character of God, that to force the person against their will to support this or that teacher would be immoral and against the will of God. This is even the case of the individual in connection with this or that teacher of his own religious persuasion. He's saying, that it's also wrong to force the individual to support their own leader or pastor. And this, he's saying, once again, with the highest authority as his example. God doesn't force us to support, financially and otherwise, the church or anything. Is it, God, is it the Lord's will that we do? Without question. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthian believers that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Surely Jefferson knew 
this reality of Almighty God when he reasoned that forcing him to support this or that teacher against his will is depriving him of the comfortable liberty of giving. The individual must enjoy the freedom of charity. So he goes on and is withdrawing from the ministry those temporary rewards which proceeding from an approbation of their personal conduct are an additional incitement to earnest and unremitting labors for the instruction of mankind. This means to force the individual's support would be to deprive ministries from the small rewards of approbation or praising the faithful giving and charity of their congregants. Just consider the difference in giving because you have to and giving because you want to. Now, consider the difference between the compliments of the receiving parties in both circumstances. In, in the forced abduction of finances, good job, good job in not resisting us, your overlords. How does that feel? <laughs> it probably feels like robbery and, and paralyzing. But in, in the will, willing, uh, cheerful giving, thank you so much, congregant. Uh, he, hey, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, how does that feel? Probably satisfying. And in this specific example, religious liberty in regard to financial support, the, the minister actually benefits more from this unimposing approach because of the satisfaction of the congregant. And this, according to Jefferson, only inspires the minister to, to labor more earnestly and unrelenting in his duties. He goes on to say, that our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions any more than our opinions in physics or geometry. That therefore, the prescribing any citizen is unworthy of the public confidence by laying upon him an incapacity of being called to offices of trust and emolument unless he profess or renounce this or that religious opinion is depriving him injuriously of those privileges and advantages to which, in common with his fellow citizens, he has a natural right. Okay, a lot was said there, but it's all critical to understanding this doctrine. Jefferson says that our opinions, belief stronger than in impression and less strong than positive knowledge, just keep that in mind, our opinions in physics and geometry and even religion do not undergird civil rights. And for clarification, that refers to rights or privileges endowed by the government. Now, these are distinct from the unalienable rights endowed by the Creator in the Declaration of Independence. Coincidentally, both are Jefferson's writings where he states that God has endowed every person with rights which cannot be alienated, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And some legal scholars, including Clarence Thomas, refer to this as natural law. While Jefferson creates a distinct category of rights endowed by the government, civil rights. Now, these are laws which would eventually come into federal existence, protecting people from discrimination, regardless of their, their skin color or gender. It's important to, once again, acknowledge that Jefferson makes a subtle distinction in facts and opinions. In other words, positions of which you cannot be certain 
cannot inform public policy, just as your opinions on physics or geometry. But what if your religious belief can be certified as factual? Are you telling me religious convictions have never informed public policy? What do you think is happening in this bill? Jefferson also states in this section that it would be wrong to force a person of public office to profess or renounce this or that religious opinion. Why? Because of what Jefferson has already stated from the nature of who God is, which he here refers to as a person's natural right. Now, that sounds very familiar to the Declaration language. Jefferson held, and by extension the signers held, that God has given every single person the right to life and the pursuit of happiness. But here in Virginia, in this Virginia bill, you can see the natural right of liberty. And in this case, liberty of thought. Now, he continues to say that it tends also to corrupt the principles of that very religion. Um, it is meant to encourage by bribing with a monopoly of worldly honors and emoluments, those who will externally profess and conform to it, that though indeed these are criminal who do not withstand such temptation, yet neither are those innocent who lay the bait in their way. Now this shows the consequence of this pressuring a public servant into religious agreement. The religion is defiled. He describes that supposed pressure or force as bribing with worldly honors and emoluments. It's basic bribery, and he's saying that those public servants who give in to said temptation are criminal, and those who do the bribing are just as criminal. Jefferson continues by saying they understand that the opinions of men are not the object of civil government, nor under its jurisdiction. Now, once again, this goes back to Jefferson's explanation on how God, in his nature, does not violate the liberty which he has bestowed on the minds and hearts of those he loves. He doesn't force himself on the people, but instead reasons with them so that in their free will, i.e. their liberty, they willingly choose to believe and love and follow him. Now, Jefferson is expressing that the government must do the same thing. Don't meddle in or attempt to instigate or formulate the opinions of men. That's not what civil government is in the business of. He also says that to suffer the civil magistrate to intrude his powers into the field of opinion and to restrain the profession or propagation of principles on supposition of their ill tendency is a dangerous fallacy, which at once destroys all religious liberty, because he, being of course judge of that tendency, will make his opinions the rule of judgment and approve or condemn the sentiments of others only as they shall square with or differ from his own. Again, this is a lengthy way of saying that judges or justices should not be forced to dabble in the business of influencing public opinion. Judges and justices are only to draw conclusions on laws or, or rulings and cases which enforce local or federal legislation. Now, ironically, whenever our Supreme Court draws its conclusions and whenever they determine a ruling, these are referred to as opinions, the majority opinion or whatever. 
But Jefferson warns of the dangerous fallacy of the forceful washings through of opinions, which he describes as suffering the civil magistrate, the judge. When this happens, Jefferson says, you destroy all religious liberty. The bill also states that it is time enough for the rightful purposes of civil government for its officers to interfere when principles break out into overt acts against peace and good order. And finally, that truth is great and will prevail if left to herself, that she is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error and has nothing to fear from the conflict unless by human interposition, disarmed of her natural weapons, free argument and debate. Errors ceasing to be dangerous when it is permitted freely to contradict them. Now that is a relevant word for our times. Truth is great and will prevail if left to herself. Jefferson describes the weapons of Lady Truth as free argument and debate, which we used to have a lot of in this country. But you notice that when she's disarmed of these two invaluable things, truth is just trampled on by human interposition. Now this is a great summation of Jefferson's earlier explanations of appealing to reason, not forceful compliance, and later his explanation of opinions. Now, at this point, it's good to note the historical context in Virginia. Long story short, Virginians were paying taxes which were being used to financially sponsor the Catholic Church of England as the official church in the state of Virginia. Now, again, long story short, many Virginians did not support that allotment of tax dollars and, and the state sponsorship of this British Catholic Church. So Jefferson begins his conclusion saying, We, the General Assembly of Virginia, do enact that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinions in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. Did you hear that last part? I just told you about the immediate context. So this outright demolished the state funding to the Church of England in Virginia. But in Jefferson's convictions about God, with the agreement of the assembly and their understanding of true liberty, this bill enacted religious freedom. In extremely basic language, the bill expresses a person's freedom to form their own religious beliefs, whether those be differing beliefs or even absent beliefs. Now, at the end of that section, it's implied that this freedom, of course, extends to public service, which he's already expressed earlier. Now, the bill ends with the concluding thought that the assembly agrees these things expressed and enforced are truth and their natural rights. Now, here's a key question. Are these matters expressed in the bill, are they facts or opinions? 
Because if their opinions, doesn't that undermine the entire legislation? His whole point? Now, this is the formation of a law, which coincidentally aligns perfectly with Jefferson's beliefs in the almighty God of Christianity. Does that mean he's establishing a law in respect to a certain religion? Because that, again, would be the law violating itself. So, another contextual point, which must be made here, is that of what the United States was opposing. What the Founding Fathers and the Framers were working to prevent, and what America was fighting to defeat at that time. Can you think of it? It's a single word which professes the opposite of liberty. It, it expresses the opposite of this law in 1779. It's tyranny. Jefferson knows that God is not tyrannical in forcing people to believe in or love him. Jefferson believed the fundamental rights granted by the Creator were life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, three things which tyranny seeks to suppress or destroy or prevent. I mean, we're talking about a renegade bunch of Americans who were in the middle of a revolutionary war against a tyrannical empire and the global superpower. The point is, this is a critical blow to mental and religious tyranny. Jefferson would later write to a friend of his, stating, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. The whole point of the bill is based on this Virginia sponsorship of a church and the tyranny of Great Britain. This bill in no manner is a banishment of faith from the public square or even the representatives in civil service. In fact, this is a group of civil servants, the governor of the state and the legislators of Virginia, who have crafted legislation based on their religious conv convictions. Now, about 12 years later, on December 15, 1791, the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution were ratified, in which Jefferson, of course, played a part. And the first amendment expresses, among other things, what is referred to as two things, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. It is believed that this Virginia bill was the legislative groundwork for this amendment, which states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, with the Virginia bill for establishing religious freedom as its backdrop, what are these clauses actually professing? What were the two things, the bill in 1779, what were the two things it sought to remedy? Tyranny of spirituality and, and also state financial sponsorships of the Church of England. Therefore, when the Establishment Clause states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, it means that the United States government will not sponsor or directly support any religious establishment. Well, then, about 70 years later, 
Section 1 of the 14th Amendment extended these clauses to the states, meaning that states couldn't make any laws in direct support of a church or prohibit the free exercise thereof. Now, I'm not going to get too much into case law because, again, case laws, these are instances of opinions from justices which you may agree or disagree with because of their uncertainty. However, the phraseology of church and state was popularized and was doctrinalized, basically, by one Supreme Court case in 1947. Everson v. Board of Education. In the state of New Jersey, the state enacted a legal statute which allowed for local school districts to provide transportation of children to and from schools. Coincidentally, uh, the Ewing Township Board of Education in New Jersey authorized reimbursements to parents who were using public transportation to bus their kids to and from school, and this was regardless of public or private school status. Now, just as the case is now, most of these private schools in the 1940s were Catholic parochial schools. A local man, Mr. Everson, challenged these reimbursements as unconstitutional. It went up to the New Jersey Supreme Court, and eventually it reached the United States Supreme Court. And in a 5-4 to four decision, the majority of justices held that the New Jersey law reimbursing parents for transportation costs to parochial schools did not violate the Establishment Clause. While I don't agree with the extent of the majority opinion written by Justice Hugo Black, this is what he said. The state contributes no money to the schools. It does not support them. Its legislation, as applied, does no more than provide a general program to help parents get their children, regardless of their religion, safely and expeditiously to and from accredited schools. Then he added, The First Amendment has erected a wall between church and state. There it is. That wall must be kept high and impregnable. We could not approve the slightest breach. New Jersey has not breached it here. The difference between this case and the historical context back in Virginia is the directness of involvement. The Supreme Court held that the taxpayer money was not supporting the churches or the religions directly. Mr. Everson thought so, but his opinion lost in the end. The court believed the tax dollars were being fairly distributed to parents, regardless of religion. Now, there have been many, many court cases and several Supreme Court cases related to this issue. You can look up Lemon v. Kurtzman and Prince v. Massachusetts and Watson v. Jones. All of these have created legal precedents, which are certainly subject to overturning, as was evidenced in the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, such as, in regard to the Establishment Clause, the primary involvement of the government in religious matters must be secular. The assistance uh, must neither uh, promote nor inhibit religion, and there can't be excessive entanglement between church and state, the key word there being excessive. Now, there are two reasons why I bring all of this up. First, a Christian is permitted to be in civil service. 
and he is dutifully charged with representing his constituents. Concerning issues of morality, the punishing of evil and the rewarding of good, the execution of law and order and justice, the civil servant must wrestle with the opinion of his constituents and his opinions of his religious convictions to discover the truth, the realities he must fight for or impose. And if you believe from your God-given conviction that life is, is from the moment of conception and, and you believe that opposition to this is opposition to natural law, you have been given the authority from the ultimate authority, <laughs> including the authority bestowed by your constituents, to create law accordingly. You have these same convictions when it comes to matters of gender and race and ethics because spirituality permeates all of you. It's the core of your being. But in the spirit of Jefferson's reasoning, appeal to your constituents. Appeal your constituents, your colleagues, and sometimes even your superiors to enact law and order accordingly. Which brings me to the second point. To do so forcefully would be tyrannical. Jefferson practically defined tyranny as something imposed against the will. So why is it acceptable for a corporation or a social media platform or a college or a university or school to silence or suppress the religious? How is it not a direct violation of natural law or case law and civil laws? No, but when it's someone uh, who speaks against vaccines or gun control or transgenderism or same-sex marriage, uh, they're, they're labeled a Christian nationalist and they're bludgeoned with church and state. And again, you're shamed and silenced and suppressed for it. But the irony is that when we say such things, we are met with, uh, which we're, we're met with tyrannical resistance. These atheistic tyrants are just as religious as we are. They have a specific fundamental set of beliefs and practices. Their God just goes by a different name. All of this to say that Christians need not bow to the oppressive mob and also don't stoop to their level of tyrannical blunt force. Instead, do as Jefferson described as he understood the nature of God. Appeal to your fellow constituents and your fellow Americans. Reason with them. Truth is great and will prevail if left to herself. She is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error and has nothing to fear from the conflict unless by human interposition, disarmed of our natural weapons, free argument and debate. Well, that's going to do it for me. What'll it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you are meant to be, and we'll see you next time on We the Free.